0: Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code... T-A-S, at liquidiv.com. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 105. On today's show, I talked to Dr. Jonathan Marks about scientific racism and creationism. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone, and welcome, Dr. Marks. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing nicely. Let us cast our pod.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, I was hoping when I found out that my wife and I were going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina for a couple months, because her family is from here and we're traveling around the country in an RV during a pandemic, it's not something I would uh, entirely advise everyone to do. However, it it does allow us to social distance and still see new and interesting places, at least if, if that's only out the front window of our RV. But when I found out I was coming here, I know that you teach here at UNC Charlotte and I was like, wow, that would be a great opportunity. So I, I I looked you up, but of course we can't meet in person, even though we're as close to any other interview I've ever been, probably, you know, just probably miles from each other right now, (laughs) but we're, we're recording (laughs) remotely and doing it safely. So there you go. Socially distancing, socially distancing. There you go. So let's talk about scientific racism and creationism. These are some topics that you've been writing about lately. You've got a new book coming up. I was first aware of you. Uh, in the early 2000s, 2002, you said it came out, but the book, what it means to be 98% chimpanzee. And that was just a fantastic book. And I I really loved the, I was just getting into anthropology and archaeology at the time. And it was a real eye opener for me on uh, just a number of topics. So, but one thing, one of your most recent books that I want to bring up first is called, uh, is Science Racist. And I'm a CRM archaeologist. I've talked about cultural resource management archaeology on this show uh, quite a few times. And over the summer, especially after the the George Floyd events in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, there was a lot of talk in CRM archaeology about diversity and, and lack of diversity and, you know, why are there so many white people in CRM and things like that? And is there some sort of bias in the writing? And it just was this whole thing about diversity and racism. So it made me think about this book of yours, Is Science Racist? So let's just start with that. What do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> scientific racism is one of the big stumbling points, stumbling blocks in in science. We we want, on the one hand, people to believe in science and to accept it. I mean, look at the things going on in the world right now. Of course, we want people to accept science. On the other hand, when science has said bad things and has said morally problematic things, <laughs> we don't want people believing it. So, and and unfortunately, it. It's generally left up to non-scientists to create that boundary. You know, back in the 1920s, if you weren't for eugenics – you were considered to be a creationist and anti-science and anti-evolution, et etc, because the biologists had linked eugenics and evolution together so tightly that it was up to non-scientists to find a theory that would allow you to be an evolutionist, but not a eugenicist. And that's one of the things that has inspired me now because it's still up to the non-scientists to disentangle the morally or even empirically problematic aspects of evolution from the more benign aspect. And we want people to, you know, believe that we evolved from apes, but we pair it up with stuff that's weird, either racism or, you know, racial invasions. I was just reading something by uh, um, in the New Yorker about the lab at Harvard that interprets the history of human interactions as racial invasions with mass rapes. I mean, that's a terrible way of thinking mm. about human history, whether or not it's true. I mean, you know, it would be nice to, to get some evidence on the behavior of people. Right. But once you just find that, you know, there are new genotypes a thousand years later, there are a lot of explanations for that. Anyway, <laughs> so there is a lot of baggage that gets associated with talking about human evolution And scientists themselves, we can talk about this later. It's something that I'm angry about in my own education. Scientists are not trained to think morally. Scientists are trained to analyze data. And one of the things that I'm angry about in my own education is that I'm not trained to think about moral issues. In the training of a scientist, we assume that you become a moral person by osmosis. And that, that somehow, you know, you just accept it. You don't take moral philosophy or civics or things like that because that's soft humanities stuff. But that's where the issues in our society are right now. You know, the, the, the basic questions of why do we have a government? Why do we pay taxes? Why do we want roads? Why do we want health care? And clearly, that is what's missing from a lot of people's mindsets today, like half of the country. So we have lost, I don't know if we ever had, but we've lost the ability to engage in a moral argument. And by argument, I mean conversation. I I don't mean just yelling, you're immoral, I hate you, and walking away, which is where we usually end up. And scientists are not trained to, to do that. The people who are trained to do that are philosophers and theologians. And we still denigrate that training in education. We want everybody to be STEM. We want everyone to take STEM. And STEM is going to teach you certain things, but it's not going to teach you how to be a better citizen and how to be a good person. And that is Mm -hmm. clearly what is really needed in society today, not can you uh, explain the structure of DNA.
0: Yeah, this concept of scientist. I'm not trained to think morally, uh, really does come up in my own field of CRM archaeology as well, especially when it concerns uh, Native American sites. And Yeah, we're trained as archaeologists to collect data and and in some cases interpret data, but not all the time. Right. Sometimes as a CRM archaeologist, especially a field technician, like you don't have time for interpretation. Right. That's somebody else's job. Uh, You're just (laughs) collecting data in a scientific way in the field. And then you're then you're moving on to another project and somebody else is doing interpretation. And and you've got a deadline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. in CRM. Yeah. So That's what your job is, is to collect the data out in the field. And we have a lot of people that get offended when a Native American group that has an ancestral relationship to the area that you're working in says, yeah, we'd like you to treat the artifacts this way. We'd like you not to dig anything up. We'd like you to do this and do that. And they just don't want to take into account anything that they have to say. And instead just fall back on their, their academic training that says, well, yeah, but we need to record all this because data, Mm. you know, without looking at the broader implications of that. So we're definitely, definitely dealing with these issues in in the, in the broader sense of CRM archaeology.
1: Well, one of the broader anthropological issues that I'm trying to invoke to talk about both scientific racism and creationism, and it sounds like CRM archaeology is that, (laughs) you know, the, the The very first question that was tackled by professional anthropologists was kinship. And kinship is really, really important in human societies. And I think the most important truism here is that the ancestors are always sacred. And Mm -hmm. we've never really internalized that scientifically within anthropology. We've internalized it sort of symbolically on the humanistic end, but we like to think about the ancestors as being dead meat and, you know, old bones in the scientific end of biological anthropology. And that has not served us particularly well, especially, you know, when it came to NAGPRA in 1990. That was an acknowledgment that there are other ways of thinking about dead people mm-hmm. in addition to just thinking of them as, as bones and rotting meat. And I think we need to understand that there are other ways of thinking about human remains than scientific. And the way to think about it is that it's the anthropological concept of the sacred. And, and I mean that in the sense of not necessarily holy, although, of course, there are people who worship their ancestors but in a sense of special and, you know, you just can't treat bones as if they were rocks and you can't treat um, human remains as if they were something else. And, of course, we Mm -hmm. have this tradition in science of devaluing everything and and, and also devaluing especially the way non-scientists think about the objects that we are working with. Right. And I think that that's going to change and it's going to change for very good anthropological reasons. You know, a colonial mindset is never a successful attitude.
0: <laughs> no, definitely not. And it, it comes down to that age old problem of of trying to remove your own personal biases from the, you know, from the science, right, from whatever you're doing. And, and my own self, case in point, I'm an atheist. I I don't have... I don't have any particular attachment to my own remains whenever that happens. You know, my wife and I have talked about it before and she's kind of the same way. And I'm like, she's like, Oh, where do you want to be buried? It's like, I literally don't care. Like, I don't even want to be buried. Like do whatever you got to do. Just get rid of it. Right. And, and I don't, I don't necessarily feel that way about my ancestors either. It's really more their deeds and what they did and remembering them that way. But I don't really care about the remains, but I can't impose that, thinking on other people and expect them to follow that at the same time. You know, as a, sure. as an archaeologist, I've got to go out and, you know, respect that.
1: Well, I mean, I, I have my dad's ashes in an urn and, you know, I, those those are my dad's remains. And I would feel kind of bad if somebody vacuumed them up. But, <laughs> right. you know, that that's all I mean by sacred. I mean that, you know, yeah. it's my dad's remains. And, and sure. I treat them as something that's not just dirt. <laughs> it's special yeah, dirt.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And everybody feels
1: differently and,
0: and you know, a good scientist should again, as I said, respect that. So I mean, back to the book, is science racist? Well, we know that science of the past, and the past could be ten minutes ago or a hundred years ago, but science of the past. I mean, we all know that mistakes were made and people's thinking was definitely not in line with the way people think today, not necessarily wrong for the time either, which is, you know, the way culture shifts and change sure. uh, changes. But as we re-examine those old scientific theories and, and, you know, some of the seminal papers and books and things that that. The foundation of a lot of fields that we work in were built on. And we start to reanalyze well, who are these people that were, you know, making these theories and projections and how do we change things? My question is do you think science is still racist? I mean, probably to a degree, but is it is it at least getting better?
1: The answer is yes, but it's slowly, slowly and surely. A wonderful book by a British science journalist named Angela Saney called Superior talks about how in the present tense, there are these weird right-wing symposia on eugenics that they try to keep secret, but then they get outed and people yell and scream. And and those are getting fewer and fewer in number. And Mm -hmm. the scientists who overtly say that, for example, Black people are genetically uh, stupid, um, those people are uh, fewer and fewer in number. Again, 40 years ago, there were more of them there. They aren't quite so much there today when, the Bell Curve came out in 1994. A bunch of uh, bioethicists wanted to have the American Society of Human Genetics denounce that book because it was abusing the science of genetics in order to make uh, political, uh, conservative political points. And the American Society of Human Genetics wouldn't do that. They said, well, you know, we don't know what the genes of black people are like, so it might be a, a possible truth there. And about 20 years later, when um, the New York Times journalist Nicholas Wade wrote a very racist book about twenty in 2014, at that point, 150 geneticists actually signed a letter to the New York Times denouncing his use of their research. So there is definitely progress over the course of the last generation or so in how geneticists are reacting to public misuses of genetics to make racist statements. But we still have a ways to go. I mean, again, there's a lot of stuff in the 21st century that really shouldn't shouldn't have been published sure a lot of it's now coming coming in the economics literature and somehow the gene pools of third world con- countries are responsible for their economic oppression and of course you know that's nonsense
0: you know you're talking about how it's it's it is getting better and you know we're we're, we're improving but how how has the last 4 years and almost more specifically the last year 2020 and the election and, and people coming out of the woodwork that, that to some people seem completely crazy, right? Yep. Has that changed your idea of how far we think we've come and maybe we're just suppressing a lot of negativity and a lot of racism, but it's still actually there. And if it's allowed to flourish, it will.
1: Absolutely. It is really scary to think, to reflect on the fact that over the last four years, a lot of the and again, this isn't coming out of the scientific community, but a lot mm-hmm. of the bad ideas that we thought were over had actually just been slightly buried, and now they're coming out, and they're just as nasty or probably even nastier now because they have automatic weapons <laughs> right but yeah there's there's a lot uh, it, it's this it's scary thing you know 40 percent of Americans don't believe in democracy, yeah. That's frightening Yeah Who knew that? Uh, You know, I certainly didn't know that And it's a scary, scary fact. But 40% of Americans believe all kinds of weird things. And it's not the same 40%. That's what's weird. You know, 40% of Americans are young earth creationists. 40% of Americans believe in ancient astronauts. And 40% of people in North Carolina won't get vaccinated for uh, COVID. So- Mm -hmm. Maybe it's like some sort of weird American magic number, 40%, but we don't know how they overlap and we don't know, but they're out there. (laughs) We need to do something about
0: it. (laughs) You know, the simple fact that there are still flat earthers tells me that
1: we've got a long way to go. (laughs) Well, (laughs) again, I'm not sure if it's that there are still flat earthers. I think that's a relative novelty. I think it's really only in the last, couple of decades that we've seen people actually claiming to be flat earthers and demanding that you debate them to prove that it's that that the earth is really round. I don't know what their motivation is. As far as I can tell, their motivation is pretty much just to show what wise asses they are. <laughs> it seems like it. <laughs> Where, you know, whereas with all of the other anti-science kinds of positions that are out there. Only creationism is really biblically, religiously motivated. Mm-hmm. You know, people people who are flat earthers, some of them can cite some biblical chapter and verse to, to rationalize their position. But I think most of them aren't biblical literalists. And I don't even know what the overlap between flat earthers and creationists are. I can tell you that on the creationist websites, They think the flat earthers are crazy, (laughs) which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. Well,
0: uh, on, on that note, let's take our first break and we'll come back on the other side and continue this discussion with Dr. John Marks back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest, Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first 3 months or go to z e n c a s t r.com and use the code TAS. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with The Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy-to-use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $80 dollars for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit Fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 105. And I'm talking to Dr. John Marks. And we left off talking about racism in science and not necessarily racist scientists, but definitely racism in science. And before we started talking and, and actually in the last segment, we mentioned some things about getting into the Bible and creationism. And then over the break, we were talking about the Flat Earth documentary on Netflix and and Flat Earthers and Creationists. So let's let's talk about the Bible and creationism and where we want to go with that. So just kick us off with that topic on on your thoughts on it.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I've always taught everything historically and epistemologically. So when I teach introductory biological anthropology, I'm always focused on not just what do we think, but why do we think it? And what did we think before we thought this? And so I've been fascinated by the fact that Biological anthropology is uh, uniquely situated in the sciences in that we have people on either side of us who don't like our science. We've got the racists who don't like our official authoritative statements about human diversity, and you've got the creationists who don't like our official authoritative statements about human origin. And mm-hmm. physicists don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Chemists don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So I've I've actually spent m- most of my career just fascinating back and forth. Between the de- engaging with the racists and engaging with the creationists, yeah, the first the first solo book I wrote was was called Human Biodiversity, mm-hmm. and that was pretty influential in its time for summarizing what we knew about human variation in the mid 1990s. And then what happened is that title, that phrase, Human Biodiversity, I coined it in order to come up with a different way of talking about human variation that wasn't racial. An alternative to thinking about race would be human biodiversity. What are those patterns? And that phrase got co-opted by the scientific racists. So what I intended to be a phrase meaning an antonym of race is now used as a synonym. So I can't use my own phrase, human biodiversity, because that's been (laughs) co-opted by the right as a new term for, for race. So I wanted to get back to human variation at some point. And in 2014, I was at Notre Dame writing a book called Tales of the X apes And um, so that was on evolution. And while I was there, I got cold called by Polity Press, which is a very good social science press in the UK. And they were interested in whether I wanted to do a short book on scientific racism. And I said, yeah, I'd like to revisit that topic. Yeah. So when I finished Tales of the X ape Apes, we wrote that, and that did well enough that they said, "Hey, you want to write another book for us?" And I said, "Yeah, let's do a creationism book." So that's <laughs> pretty much how this book came about. When I was teaching at Berkeley, for example, I would spend, uh, you know, most of the semester talking about why we don't believe in what what came to be known as intelligent design. You know, why why isn't a species like a watch? And why is a species more like a breed, a variety, a subspecies than a species is like a mechanism, which, of course, is the the fundamental replacement of the metaphor that Darwin does in the 1860s by saying, you know, I, I learned in school that a species is like a watch, but, you know, it's not. It's more like a variety or a breed or a subspecies. So they've gotten this all semester And I'm teaching human evolution at Berkeley and the founder of intelligent design, a law professor named Phil Johnson was teaching there in the law school. So I would have him come out and and give a guest lecture on (laughs) intelligent design. And I figured, you know, if I if he won any souls for intelligent design, then I hadn't done my job particularly well. <laughs> but it was really interesting. I learned more about intelligent design by simply having a very cordial lunch with Phil Johnson than I ever would learn from their writings. Mm-hmm. For example, Johnson gave, the, gave the, the example to my class, this is 1998, 1999, of how Windows 98 was an example of intelligent design. Now of course these are sophisticated Berkeley students in the audience and they knew that Windows 98 had crashed the day that Bill Gates tried to demonstrate it so it was not a very good operating <laughs> right. system right but this was his example of intelligent design and over lunch you know I asked him look if if Windows 98 is evidence of intelligent design what is Mac OS I mean it's a better yeah. it's a better designed system by a different designer so is intelligent design theory, is that even compatible with monotheism or is it really a polytheistic theory? And Johnson, you know, just said very casually, oh, I, I you know, we're casting our net widely. It's, it's just as compatible with polytheism as it is with monotheism. And I hmm. said, well, but. So you're teaching a theory that isn't even fundamentally monotheistic in, in these churches, in, the, in these uh, evangelical churches. And you're not telling them that the ideas that you're giving them are just as compatible with polytheism as they are with monotheism. <laughs> and he says, well, why would I tell them that? <laughs> you know? So it, it, it was all very much there are issues and let's discuss them. You know, if, if you yeah. want to if you want to believe in the Bible that the Bible is sacred, I I accept that I I have no problem with the Bible as sacred literature. But if you want to tell me that it was divinely authored and came about you know from the from the the fingerprint of of the the creator of the universe in exactly these words, then we need to look at it carefully. And, and one of the things that that happened to me during during my my year at uh, Notre Dame when I was writing Tales of the Ex-Apes is that for the first time in my life, I actually started hanging out with biblical scholars. And, you know, back when I was an assistant professor at Yale, I didn't know anybody in the Yale Divinity School. It's like, my God, who would hang out with those people? I'll probably try and evangelize us. <laughs> and I began to realize is that, first of all, there's been a real See change in the demographic composition of biblical scholars in that they're coming not from evangelizing like they did 40, 50 years ago. They're coming from philology, language, history, classics, and they have a lot of anthropological training. And the Bible scholar of today, you know, who's an assistant associate professor, is not necessarily the strong believer that you might mm-hmm. think they are. So I started hanging out with some of these people and it, it's it's really wonderful to talk to them because they, you know, there are allies against the creationists. Biblical scholars don't take the Bible literally. And the, the, uh, a biblical literalist is in fact a greater challenge to a biblical scholar than to an anthropologist because the biblical scholar has to change how that person is thinking about their most fundamental ideas. Yeah. You know, the study of the Bible for for thousands of years is about how to extract what the Bible means from what it says. And the idea that what it says is unproblematic is not part of either Jewish tradition or Catholic tradition and not much of Protestant tradition. In other words, Creationism isn't a science versus religion issue. It's a religion versus religion issue. It's about how to understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. And neither Catholics nor Jews have traditionally believed. I mean, there are some creationists among them. Uh, some people, you know, take it a little more strongly than others. But in Judaism and Catholicism, it's always about what does the Bible mean for uh, a congregation today? In spite of what it says to congregants of, uh, you know, the, the, the later Bronze Age, one of my most favorite discoveries, I was reading St. Augustine. I mean, who reads St. Augustine, right? Except biblical scholars. <laughs> and last, the last book he wrote was, was called On Taking the Bible Literally, or On Taking Genesis Literally. And he mm-hmm. really, really, St. Augustine, this is like, you know, 300 AD. He really wants to take the Bible as seriously as he can. And he's stuck on one passage in Genesis. And that is, Adam and Eve eat the apple and their eyes were opened. And St. Augustine actually says, how can we take this literally? Because literally it would mean that their eyes had been closed all this time. they have been walking around the Garden of Eden bumping into things. <laughs> right. And obviously, the only way to, to, to understand that is metaphorically. Their eyes were opened metaphorically, and they could see morality. And once you recognize that, that there is inescapable metaphor there, then you have to start saying, all right, well, you know, what else is metaphorical and how can we reconcile what the Bible says to, you know, what we now know? And, and that's kind of where we are. I, you know, the people who want to take the Bible at face value are going against centuries and centuries of biblical th- thought and scholarship. So they are they are antithetical to modern humanistic scholarship at least as much as they're antithetical to modern scientific scholarship. And that's, I think, what's missing from the discussions of creationism.
0: Hmm. So when we're looking at creationists now, I mean, I, I feel like I'm probably not plugged into the same news articles and sources and things that you are when I'm looking at my my newsfeed, but I feel like I hear way less about creationism now than we even did, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And again, maybe that's just me getting bored with what they're saying, because it's the same thing over and over again. But are they, I guess, through things like intelligent design, and then, you know, there's the whole... There's biblical archaeology, you know, people trying to actually do science and archaeology, trying to prove different things happened in the Bible. But, you know, the minute you start going into real science and you start using real science to try to justify your position, I mean, I think most of us would probably realize that their position's going to be on pretty shaky ground. So, what are creationists standing on today if they themselves are even knocking these things down by trying to do science to prove their own theories?
1: You know, the biggest spokespeople for creationists are, of course, the ones in the Kentucky Noah's Ark Museum and and the, <laughs> the creationist right. museum down there. And you're right; they're saying the the same old things. I'm not interested so much in arguing with them. I mean, you know, you might as well argue with a trumpist or you know a flat <laughs> earther. Yeah. But I am interested in explaining to a reader or to a student why we think that the bible is literature and and it's sort of once you get that you know if you assume that the bible is handed down by god then you go in in one direction but once you start saying hey wait a minute this is literary then you're going to go in a different direction and i think that's a lot of what's missing i think a lot of people who venerate the bible don't understand it, don't understand even what it is. Mm You know, there's a lot of people, for example, who think not only is the Bible sacred in its verbiage, but it's the King James text that is absolutely unassailable and absolutely literally true. And of course, the problem with the King James – text well, there's a lot of problems with the King James text – yeah. But the thing that I like to start out with is it mentions unicorns several times. <laughs> so if you go to Psalm 22, save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. And, you know, maybe that's a one-off, but I promise you it's not. There's about 10 mentions of unicorns in the King James Bible. Right. And I think if you want to argue – that your text is true and you want to face the world of science, you're going to have to disentangle unicorns from your religious beliefs. You don't want your religious beliefs hanging on whether or not unicorns are real, do you? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I I don't think you do. Yeah. yeah. Um, So clearly there are translational issues. And by the way, different Translations will render that as wild oxen rather than unicorns. So without the King James text and the unicorns, <laughs> there there are places in the Bible, for example, where an entire chapter is repeated, like word for word. Now, to relate this to anthropology back in the day, in mean, about 19 – gosh, about 1997 – there was a book that had been published that was only available in Nairobi, and it was called Richard E. Leakey, Master of Deceit, by people who really hated Richard Leakey. And I wanted a copy of this book because it was being circulated sort of dot in the U.S., and the only place to get it was in Nairobi. And it turned out that I was going to Nairobi, and I made the tour bus stop at three different bookstores to get a copy of this damn book richard e leakey master of deceit and i finally got a copy of it got it home to berkeley started reading it and i discovered that it had two copies of chapter 10 (laughs) okay and i thought to myself gee well that's a printer's error right yeah what happens when you see that in the bible hmm so, I mean, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 19 and you go to Isaiah chapter 37, they're exactly the same. Really? Now, of course, whoever whoever reads them, <laughs> you know, that closely, but if you do that, that is exactly what you'll see. It's something about King Hezekiah and, and it goes on. And in fact, also Chapter divisions in the Bible are quite late. So actually, it doesn't just start at the chapter. It goes before the chapter begins and after the chapter ends. But it's word for word the same. So, w- you know, what do you say to that? Is, is can this really, you know, did God make a mistake? Was this a printer error? <laughs> you know, what is this? He just really wanted to put a point on that. Yeah, and it's a very boring story also about King Hezekiah, I might add. So, you know. Nice. So so the point is that the Bible looks like sacred literature. Mm-hmm. So why would you think that it is something other than sacred literature? Yeah. And, and that's, I think, where we need to go. When we talk to creationists, let's not talk about biology because – you know, they're not that interested, quite honestly, they're not that interested in fruit flies. They're not that interested in Homo erectus. There are other things that are prioritized with creationists. But if we want to start, I think, by getting them to think more critically about the Bible itself. That's sort of what my goal is, not to argue whether your story about biology is right or my story about biology is right. But what are you even basing your story on? Yeah. So another another great thing in the Bible, again, that sort of is the Bible saying to us, this is literature. OK, mm-hmm. so Joshua, book of Joshua, chapter 10, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? Answer, no, it's not written in the book of Jashar. There is no book of Jashar. Okay? (laughs) The the Bible here is citing non-existent literature. Now, if we think of the Bible as a collection of sacred writings— some of which have been preserved and some of which have not been preserved, then this passage makes perfect sense. It's citing the book of Jasher, which we no longer have. Alternatively, let's look at the Bible as the singular fingerprint of God. Suppose you got a term paper that cited a non-existent book in its bibliography. How would you grade that paper? Right, And presumably you would say that's not the way bibliographies work. You can't do that. You can't cite non-existent literature. Okay, so maybe the book of Jashar in the book of Joshua is a one-off, and it was an accident, and maybe it was supposed to be book of Leviticus or something. Well, it turns out that there's Mm -hmm. another reference to the book of Jashar in the Bible, and Mm -hmm. that's in 2 Samuel he ordered that this book the song of the bow be taught to the people of judah it is written in the book of jashar so there's two references to this non-existent book in the bible yeah and what does it mean if the bible is invoking non-existent literature to justify the claims it's making it means that it's literature so in fact there are all kinds of books by the way mentioned in the bible that aren't actually extant anymore
0: I want to bring that up on the other side of this next break because that's, that's incredibly interesting to me and, quite frankly, makes a lot of sense. So let's do that on the other side of this break in the final segment when we come back with Dr. John Marks back in a minute. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. All right. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show. And this is the final segment of episode 105 with Dr. John Marks. And we are talking about creationism right now. And before the break, you mentioned, you know, the book of Jashar being mentioned several times and and a bunch of other books being mentioned in the Bible that don't actually exist. Well, my first thought as a, you know, as a scientist are, well, well, first off, I'm also an atheist, so I don't really see the Bible as a perfect, complete text, which I know some people do. And this is a good, this is one good reason for that. But then the, my my thought is, okay, but it is a piece of literature and it is a piece of historical literature for that matter. And is it possible that those are just lost? Like those books just don't, they, they, they were written, but they were never included for some reason. And somebody somebody knew about them because they made reference to them. And and then we go from there. So just from a pure, I guess, academic point of view, is it possible that those exist, but they're just been lost? And why doesn't that matter so much to, you know, biblical scholars? Why are they just kind of ignoring that?
1: Oh, no, no. It, for biblical scholars, it definitely matters. I mean, the biblical scholar interprets yeah. it exactly the same way you do. The problem is with the creationist and the biblical scholar is, is not a creationist. Yeah. yeah. And one of the one of the interesting things that one hears from biblical scholars is that they don't engage with creationism because creationism is not just bad science it's actually worse theology than it is science and <laughs> and i've had i've had the, christian theologians literally say it in those words to me mm-hmm. so the the interlocutor here is not a biblical scholar because a biblical scholar and an archaeologist are really going to be on the same page most of the time especially when it comes to you know what is the bible and and what sense do we make of it but the it's the citizen who is just sort of listening to their pastor in in church on Sunday, telling them things that are baloney that are the people that I think we need to get to. Hmm. So can we keep talking about wonderful problems with the Bible? Absolutely. Keep going. OK. Second Chronicles. This is this is another good one. All right. <laughs> Solomon. King Solomon is building his majestic temple, and outside of it, he has a giant pool. And the pool represents, uh, I guess, the earth or the sea. And the second chronicles tells us Solomon made the molten sea. It was round, 10 cubits from rim to rim and five cubits high. So it's 10 cubits from rim to rim, circular bowl a line of 30 cubits would encircle it completely. Okay, so now we have a little problem of geometry. If you have a round bowl filled with water and it's 10 cubits wide, would a line of 30 cubits encircle it completely? And the answer is, of course not, because a line of 30 Mm. cubits would fall 1.4 cubits short because i is 3.14 and not 3.0 and if you want to build a giant pool that is 10 cubits in diameter then a line of 30 cubits is going to have to be a little short because the circumference <laughs> of that 10 cubit wide pool is going to be 31.4 cubits right so, how do we reconcile this geometric problem with the realities of geometry? Right, and we could say it was a miracle. Maybe somehow the line of 30 cubits grew a cubit and a, a bit, or maybe pi was different. Was pi different in the days of King Solomon? Maybe God didn't know the value Probably of pi. Not. Yeah, <laughs> um, or or obviously, yeah. you know, th- the narrative is slightly inaccurate. It was written by someone who knew that pi was about three, and a cubit is the length from your elbow to your fingertip, and that's not exactly a precise measurement. So, what the heck? You know, uh, about thirty. But again, if you take that as literally the word of God, then you have a problem with geometry. So again, it's not even a question of biology; it's a question of something much more fundamental than that. Something I'd never really,
0: I guess, really solidly thought about before. You know, I've I've known creationists. I've I've read books on creationism. You know, not studied it extensively, but I always just assumed that while they were literalists that, and maybe this is just my scientific brain kicking in, that they couldn't possibly take a hundred percent of the Bible as literal, Uh, you know, passages that were, you know, in my early, early, the only, the only sort of biblical training, I guess I ever had, I didn't grow up very religious, but we did go to Bible school when I was younger. And I remember seeing the red passages were like stuff that Jesus actually said in the particular Bible that we had and, and things like that. So in my mind, if something was going to be literal, it was going to be the stuff that, you know, the stuff that Jesus said that if I were going to take things literally would be those things right there or the things that he was supposed to have said. But do creationists, creationists really take every single word of the Bible as literal? Is that, I mean, you're, you're real died in the wool creationist. Is that what they think?
1: Well, there is a spectrum of, of beliefs, I'm sure. But, you know, 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson was cutting up his Bible and, and taking out the things that he didn't think Jesus <laughs> said and leaving in the things he did think Jesus said. So this is not exactly new. Sure. But once you are a biblical literalist, once you say the book of Jasher, let, let's get back to the book of Jasher. Once you say that book is missing – and has been lost, then you leave yourself open to the argument that maybe the book of evolution has been lost too. And once you start saying as a creationist, okay, maybe these passages should be understood metaphorically, then you leave yourself open to, okay, maybe the six days of creation need to be taken metaphorically as well. And that's what real Christian theologians have been saying for, you know, at least 150 years. So Mm -hmm. the problem is, is again, not with the biblical scholars. The problem is with the rank and file who are told things by uneducated leaders of their flock and need to learn some anthropology. Yeah. I mean, you know, Adam and Eve, just talking about Adam and Eve, the most fascinating thing about Adam and Eve to me as, as an anthropologist is that they were horticulturalists. Right. They're tending a garden. Right. So what and this, in fact, was a big issue in the 1800s for the scholarly community. Namely, what about hunters and gatherers? Mm -hmm. Because if Adam and Eve were horticulturalists and we know ethnographically and archaeologically that there are people who don't do food production, is that (laughs) degenerate? Were their ancestors horticulturalists or was hunting and gathering primordial and, you know, agriculture discovered on that basis? Well, that was one of the first questions that had to be answered in the early 1800s. And of course, it's in parallel with biology. You have John Lubbock, who is the neighbor of Charles Darwin, And so in 1865, John Lubbock writes Prehistoric Times, and Prehistoric Times is the book that establishes for the entire academic community and the literate community that hunting and gathering is primordial in human existence. And mm-hmm. consequently, once again, you have to think of Adam and Eve differently or metaphorically because of horticulture and agriculture and growing your own food is something that was discovered and implemented after people had been hunting and gathering for a very long time. And once you establish that, once again, it becomes easier to talk about other things that the Bible got wrong. Yeah, But that's a very anthropological thing. And, you know, you can argue all you want about fruit flies and about Homo erectus, but hey, let's start talking about hunters and gatherers. Yeah. Are they primordial or are they degenerate? And once you go there, you realize that, in fact, Genesis is far worse on anthropology and archaeology than it is on biology. I mean, God did not, you, whatever you think of chimpanzees, God did not make corn. Right. We know who made corn. It was made by Mesoamericans. It was made by people and they did it a few thousand years ago. If you want to start trying to relate it to the Bible, you sort of have to ask, how did it get lost from Europe, Asia, and Africa until, you know, the the 16th century? You might ask, how did Noah drop it off in, in uh, Mexico? Right. I mean, you know, these are questions that archaeology is pretty clear about and Absolutely refutes what's in the Bible. But unfortunately, we keep talking about creationism as if it's just a biological issue. And it's not. It's something that is much bigger than biology. And that's really where uh, my book, which will be out in um, the spring, is, is going.
0: Yeah. And, and let's talk about that in a second here. Um, uh, first I would like to bring up another example though, a dog breeding, right? I mean, Mm. if we can, if we can create new breeds of dogs now, I mean, the Labradoodle did not exist 20 years ago. (laughs) Um, but if, (laughs) if we can make new breeds of dogs now and we can put hybrid vegetables together in a garden, like any, you know, any person with a plot of land behind their house can dump two things together and make hybrid vegetables. And if we can do that now, why is there, this massive assumption that w- that these things weren't happening intentionally if not naturally, you know, when things just just kind of happen that way through evolution and, you know, different types of breeding. I, it just floors me that that people can't see that.
1: Oh, well, but that's exactly Darwin's fundamental argument in The Origin of Species is that a species is not like a human me- is not like a human-made mechanism. It's like a very large dog breed.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah,
1: or a very large, you know, pigeon breed. right? And that's a better metaphor for understanding what a species is than a watch.
0: Yeah, indeed. So, well, we're just about out of time. And I actually pulled up the page here and we're going to link to your next book coming out. Why are there still creationists, human evolution and the ancestors? And it says on the polity books website, July of 2021. I don't know if they've push that out from spring a little bit just because of COVID or what, but hopefully they stick to that because it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating read. Can you give us the answer? Why are there still creationists?
1: Um, Yeah, it's, it's a paradox. There aren't still creationists. Creationism that we see now is a very reactive position and it's not at all, again, Mm -hmm. primordial. um, It's a big mistake to think that what Ken Ham and biblical literalists today are, are promoting is actually the resistance that Darwin met uh, 150 years ago what we see now in the biblical literalism is very very reactive and not at all uh, ancient hmm.
0: well good to know I think my final I think my final question for you is where are you going from here this book is more than likely written. I don't know if you're just working on some edits or something like that, but at this late stage in the game, you're probably pretty much done with it. So where are you going from here? Are you sticking with this theory and and sticking with creationists and the Bible and things like that, or are you going some other way?
1: Well, I should be receiving (laughs) galley proofs in about five days on this book. So when it's out in July or perhaps June, I will be working on something else. And that book will probably get back to questions about, popular assumptions in genetics so i'm vacillating between creationism i I guess and racism again but this won't be focused so much on racism as on an over-reliance on folk ideas about heredity of which racism is just kind of one but we haven't really gotten very much into that yet i'm still working on the creationism book why are there still creationists (laughs)
0: Exactly. Well, hopefully we can have you on again when you're ready to talk about that next book, because it sounds like another fascinating topic. So it sounds good. Again, thanks for coming on, Dr. Marks. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. And we will see everybody here next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 U.S. dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k,
1: and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.